Hello and welcome back to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotek Andre, and you're listening to episode 16 of the podcast. And if this is your first time listening, welcome, and I hope you find the content helpful and enjoyable in some way. Feel free to check out the previous episodes too, if some of them seem interesting to you. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back again, and thank you for your continued support. In this episode, I'm joined by someone who runs, in my opinion, one of the best fitness blogs out there, and that's the Subversity blog. And I'm talking about Mr. Adel Musa, who doesn't get the recognition he would deserve, because as you will uh, hopefully be able to tell after our uh, discussion, he's an extremely intelligent guy and um, has some very deep insights when it comes to nutrition and physiology. And that was the reason why I invited him on the podcast to discuss um, a topic that's uh, near and dear to both of us and uh, highly controversial, and that's uh, the whole subject of glucose regulation and uh, insulin sensitivity and um, glucose tolerance and all that. So in this episode, we discuss a ton of things related to insulin sensitivity, blood glucose monitoring, uh, hypo or hyperglycemia, metabolic flexibility, the impact of visceral versus uh, regular subcutaneous body fat on insulin sensitivity, what are the lifestyle factors you can adjust to improve your own insulin sensitivity, we address whether a high-carb, low-fat messing is a good idea, we discuss glucose disposal agents and whether they would be a worthy addition to your supplement stack. And um, last but not least, we touch on taurine, which is one of one of others' favorite supplements and um, something that I do use myself and have been receiving a lot of questions about. And the one that seems like not many people in the quote-unquote evidence-based uh, fitness community address or um, consider it to be important. So I hope that those topics piqued your attention and if so then um, you'll be in for a treat because like I said this was a highly informative episode here and there with some deep dives into physiology but I don't think it will be um, over anyone's head who is uh, listening to this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. Unfortunately others uh, audio on his part wasn't the greatest. I did my best to clean it up and uh, it is definitely listenable, so please bear with that. It might be a bit lower quality than, for example, last week's guest, Burger Fagelli. Speaking of which, if you haven't listened to that episode, please do so, because um, I have been receiving some very good feedback on that one. So without further rambling, let's get into episode 16 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Adel Musa. Adel Musa, welcome to the podcast. I assume that most people will be familiar with your uh, blog, the subversity and the excellent work you do there. But um, aside from that, what is it that you're currently doing? Are you teaching? And I think you have, um, you also contribute for examining, is that correct? Yeah, actually both is correct. So my real job, quote unquote, is to be a teacher, a physics teacher. And I've been previously, I've been working in... Uh, at, the, at the university level, teaching future physics teachers. And uh, for various reasons, I ended up teach, uh, or um, continuing my career as a quote-unquote normal teacher. And I actually like that quite, uh, quite a bit. Uh, but um, physical culture, supplements, fitness, nutrition, these things are still 
one of my time-consuming hobbies and um, part of it is also writing the blog and uh, working or, or helping with examine or rather the examine research digest as somebody who reviews the articles that are to be published in the respective next issue awesome and um, from what i've seen that's uh, quite a high quality product as or as are all the uh, things and uh, products that examine launched so Congratulations for that. Thank you. And I can agree to that. It's, it's uh, the best thing about Examine, I believe, is that it has these very rigorous standardization. If you look at the website, you will know that. And for the research digest and the ways the articles are written, it's pretty similar, actually. And that makes it valuable because, first of all, you can rely on the facts you get. And second of all, um, you also can um, really... Uh, identify with the format and get used to it so uh, both is certainly a huge plus yeah for sure so um the main topic or rather the center of our discussion will be the whole concept of insulin sensitivity and carb tolerance and uh, a whole lot of related issues but um to bring everyone to a even playing field so to speak i think it it would be useful to really clarify what insulin sensitivity is maybe how it's measured in a lab or research setting and uh, how it could be measured in the real world yeah actually insulin sensitivity is a term that refers to um, your body's ability to appropriately and the focus here is on appropriately um, react to um, increases in glucose by corresponding increases in, in uh, insulin that will then actually uh, increase the uptake of glucose and normalize the blood glucose levels again. So um, that is a bit different from the general notion that insulin sensitivity or resistance was mostly about um, or you would be even more, uh, uh, most insulin sensitive if you had the greatest response uh, to insulin. But that's not necessarily the case. So um, sometimes that can be a problem. And I think we will be talking about that in the course of the podcast. But um, back to the main definition, uh, you would have to ideally measure glucose and insulin at the same time in order to uh, be able to tell how they interact in um, to be really able to say uh, what your individual net insulin sensitivity is and this is also where the problems come in when you talk about measuring it uh, in your everyday lives um, because you usually can't measure insulin directly at least not with, with a regular glucometer um, so that you will have to rely on proxies so um, one of the best ways to determine if you are insulin sensitive or resistant, a resistant is probably um, to measure your blood glucose levels several times after a meal and see where they are going. So that is certainly better than just measuring that them in the early morning, uh, because sometimes some people have high blood glucose in the morning, but still no real problems with. Um, insulin sensitivity while others have absolutely normal levels and will have blood sugar excursions and problems with insulin management after every meal. 
So um, basically, the more relevant measure is probably the one, the glucose response to an individual meal. If you are at the doctor's office, for example, you can uh, have an oral glucose tolerance test done. And that's also one of the main methods that's used uh, in research at the moment to determine if you are insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. Awesome. So um, there's a recent trend or at least uh, recent to me. I don't know how recent it is. I guess people have been doing it for a long time, but um, I see more and more people have started doing these um, like you said, these daily blood glucose uh, measurements, usually after waking up. And um, like you said, I don't see a whole lot of people posting uh, after meal uh, values. And I would imagine that um, sticking a needle into your finger uh, three, four times a day would be quite tedious. So uh, do you think that uh, this would be valuable for someone who is really interested interested in maximizing their results and body composition and all that stuff or would something like uh, more long term something like uh, hba1c taken every six months something like that would be that just as appropriate i think for for most people that would be just as appropriate and you also don't have to do the the blood glucose monitoring on a very regular like like weekly base um, but especially if you suspect that you are having problems managing your blood glucose levels because you have symptoms like increased thirst or increased urination all these things that would um, point towards uh, diabetes then it makes sense to at least uh, do the test once and it's really not expensive i mean even if you don't have a glucometer you can get one for at least in germany roughly 10 euros so around about 12 dollars and um you can do the test because uh most of them will come with enough of those test stripes to do at least 15 or 20 measurements and that's way more than you would need to have to get an idea of how you react and metabolize glucose in a meal on the other hand, if you really, if you're somebody who really is into what some people call biohacking and quantified self, um, then you will probably not be happy with the data you're going to get. Because if you have random or even set intervals at which you test the blood glucose, you only have data from these time points. And there, for, for the people who have unlimited funds to satisfy their curiosity, uh, it would be interesting to get one of these uh, patches that actually measures your blood glucose levels continuously. And uh, with those, you can make more specific statements about um, what's going on in terms of uh, your glucose management. Excellent. I thought those were only for diabetics. I didn't know that they could be simply purchased uh, and walk into a pharmacy or something like that and just uh, get one. You, it, they are difficult to get by, so you have to order them with the producer directly. But um, I checked one time and it's it's generally possible, but they are very expensive. So uh, you really have to be into this kind of data in order to do that. Especially if you're doing it just for general health purposes, you are fine with the uh, with the HbA1c testing. And that is actually a quite a good measure of whether you are regularly going overboard on glucose or not. And if your HbA1c is within within range, so to say, you usually don't have any classic diabetic 
problems as in hypoglycemia. But you could, for example, have issues with uh, low blood, uh, blood glucose from time to time and uh, short excursions, which is actually quite, I wouldn't say it is common, but at least you will find people who are in really good shape having those problems as well. So that is a different aspect of insulin sensitivity that is often overlooked. And that is also what I was hinting at before when I said that you need an appropriate response. So for some people, really the insulin, uh, the insulin that is released when they eat, um, especially high GI carbohydrates, um, is going to drive the blood glucose to a level that will then requ require stress hormones to be released in order to compensate for the dropping uh, blood sugar levels. And that's, that's a problem that uh, people who are working out very often and at the same time not keeping an eye on their liver glycogen stores uh, seem to have regularly. Interesting. So this would be more relevant in a... Um in a fat loss phase, I guess, when body fat levels are low? Yeah, actually, it's quite interesting that this is one of the main um, unwanted side effects of weight loss surgery. Many people who uh, underwent weight loss surgery end up having a problem with um, hypoglycemic episodes, so low blood sugar episodes, especially after the consumption of um, high-carbohydrate foods, because all of a sudden um, they start to produce more insulin again and actually more importantly the insulin starts working again and that can predispose them to periods of uh, hypoglycemic episodes and that is not healthy at all so uh, you want to avoid both too high and too low glucose levels and um, the the former are the classics um, or are the classic uh, symptom of type 2 diabetes while the latter are considered to be something like a signal that there is something wrong with the with your glucose management in general and therefore it's not surprising that studies show that many people who have these um, so-called postprandial hypoglycemia meaning that after a meal your blood glucose levels drop um, that many of them eventually segue into a full-blown diabetes so um, this is something to, to really keep an eye on. Really interesting. So um, <laughs> there is often this uh, notion that um, your blood sugars should be, um, shouldn't have spikes and it should be nice and stable throughout the whole entire day. And uh, I remember, I think it was Marty McDonald who said that, well, you, do you know what it's called when your blood sugar is stable or <laughs> diabetes? <laughs> so his point was that, well, you should have spikes and then it should go down back to normal so um how should a normal glucose tolerance or a normal insulin uh, curve i guess uh, look like and um what are the tail signs i guess um, how could you notice on yourself if you didn't do um blood glucose man uh, measuring you mentioned one uh, that you feel extreme thirst and um, you pee a lot but what would be other symptoms of this well the other and that would be when you are already um, unable to really clear the blood glucose and the glucose levels are increasing then your body is trying to get rid of the glucose by peeing it out and uh, it requires more water to dilute all that so to say in the early phases quite often you will simply notice um, 
uh, central nervous system um, effects. Like for example, especially if you have uh, high carbohydrate meals, you can or uh, you feel fatigued after the meal instead of energized. Mm -hmm. And you get other symptoms like for example, you're starting to sweat or you're starting to have brain fog or things like that especially related to high carbohydrate meals all that can tell you that there may be a problem there it doesn't have other reasons why this may be happening but it's still worth investigating your uh, glucose management then and as i said before it can be done with a glucometer at home and you you should be accepting that the glucose levels are going to rise after a high carbohydrate meal and they're supposed to do the, just that um, but within roughly two hours it, they should be uh, within the normal zone again and that's if that's not the case um, you may have problems to um, you may have reasons to worry and you should maybe follow that up by at least um, testing your HbA1c and maybe getting an oral glucose tolerance test which is obviously more standardized than simply testing your glucose levels after a simple meal. I used to say that, um, I think I posted this, uh, I posted about this on Instagram or something, that um, not being able to go without food for five, six hours or something like that is not normal, it's not healthy. And uh, I remember years ago when I was a bit, uh, well, chubbier, I guess, and um, I wasn't doing quite, uh, well, I wasn't really training all that much, I remember becoming this um, sort of hangry, like this combination of anger and hunger if I hadn't eaten for like three to four hours and um, now I can do a 24-hour fast or something and be fine. So do you think it's um, a fair statement to make that you should be able to go without food for even 24 hours or something like that and feel fine, I guess? And um, do you think that the not being able to do so is a sign that your body isn't really efficient at utilizing a variety of energy sources in this case probably not efficient in um, mobilizing fat for fuel yeah i think that that this is actually way more important than uh, the degree of insulin sen sensitivity you are presenting with so um lately people have been really focusing on being insulin sensitive assuming that because uh, insulin resistant is uh, resistance is linked to uh, metabolic syndrome to obesity to all sorts of ailments um, it is tempting to, th to say that it is one of the most important health variables but actually um, there are time periods when you want some what I, what I often call physiological insulin resistance, um, because that is what will allow you to cruise along uh, without uh, eating carbohydrates every two hours, uh, because it will stabilize your blood glucose levels and um, switch to fat burning, so to say. So the ideal state is the one where your body is very good and adept in switching from burning glucose when it's available to burning fat or ketones when there is no glucose available. And healthy individuals, especially those who exercise regularly, actually become better in doing just that. And um, weight loss is probably involved uh, because in general, one of the markers of, uh, of the hallmark triggers of insulin resistance, resistance is actually obesity and the consequences like increased free fatty acids in the blood and or the clogging of the liver with uh, fat 
and the liver is actually the well you could say the pancreas is number one and the liver is number two in glucose management because it is the organ that will supply your body with readily available glucose first when the glucose levels are dropping uh, it is also the organ that is um, responsible for insulin clearance and that is something that people often overlook because how much insulin you will have in your blood, especially in the latter period of the postprandial response, is not so much about how much your pancreas produced as it is about the clearance or the absence of clearance of insulin by the liver. And it's quite interesting to look at studies which um, try to quantify that. And they found that in type 2 diabetics, the uh, roughly 90% higher insulin levels uh, can be explained to only one third, or only one third of that can be explained by increased production. Rather than that, the other 60% um, are actually explained by um, a lack of hepatic clearance. So the liver doesn't um, clear insulin as quickly as it's supposed to be. And while it is not quite clear what, what's the chicken, what's the egg here, so it could be that that uh, the insulin uh, clearance is um, hampered before and maybe even deliberately by the body because you are insulin resistant, so you need more insulin. There are two ways to get more insulin or to get, make it at least work longer. So either you produce more in the beginning or you keep it around longer. And that is one of the explanations of why there's this link between uh, clearance and insulin resistance. And the other one would be um, that if you are insulin resistant, um, that's also going to affect the, the system that's detecting the level of insulin in your blood. And that would obviously throw the um, regulation of the clearance out of balance. Super interesting. So um, what are the lifestyle factors, I guess, that we could um, influence or the lifestyle elements we could work on to improve our... Uh blood sugar management and our insulin sensitivity and all that and obviously where the one that has been given the most attention is body fat level and um, that's been the center of a whole lot of discussion lately and if, I don't know if you've seen the debate between Mike and Eric Herms on how uh, long you should bulk and how high you should let your body fat levels get and uh, how that would influence your insulin sensitivity. I'm curious, have you seen any um, research directly comparing um, body fat levels with insulin sensitivity uh, with or without exercise? Because uh, I think Eric mentioned this himself, that there is a discrepancy between what bodybuilders consider healthy and lean and uh, what uh, <laughs> a general, uh, well, even a doctor would consider so for example a bodybuilder for a bodybuilder 20% body fat would be obese whereas in a general sense that's still considered uh, probably the upper end of a healthy body fat level i haven't followed the discussion you mentioned in particular um but but in general um this is absolutely right so body fat levels are one of the most important determinants of your insulin sensitivity but if you actually look at the studies, it's quite interesting to see that um, there are other markers that may be even more predictive of uh, your risk of developing um, diabetes. And one of those is the, the amount of fat in your liver. And um, that is an even better predictor of uh, future 
type 2 diabetes um, than uh, classic body fat measurements, especially if you only have a um, total body fat percentage and not a specific measurement of uh, visceral body fat, which appears to be the one that's actually driving the insulin resistance. So when we when we mention when we say um, visceral uh, body fat, we talk about the uh, body fat around the organs. Yeah, exactly. There is this whole, uh, like you mentioned, this whole uh, biohacking and I guess biosignature thing, and I even seen something on Instagram that uh, well, if you store more body fat around this area, then that means that this particular hormone is elevated. And for example. I've seen someone say that, well, if you store more body fat around your midsection, and I'm certainly one of those people, then uh, that means that my cortisol levels are too high. <laughs> no, that means that you're a male. <laughs> because men tend to store the body fat there, while women, at least uh, pre-menopause, um, tend to store it in their upper legs more. Uh, so... I'm not quite sure if that's, if you can make a hormonal diagnosis based on uh, looking at the, the body fat distribution. But it's certainly right that um, this central storage of body fat, and we are not really talking about the nasty fat everybody wants to get rid of that's covering your abs, because that's not visceral fat, that's uh, subcutaneous fat. Uh, but rather about the, the, the fat that's, so to say, beyond the abs, that you want to get rid of. And this kind of fat is a very, or it is actually the, or seems to be the type of fat that your body resorts to when the regular stores are either maxed out or no longer responding. So if you take a look at the etiology of uh, type 2 diabetes, you will notice that um, as long as you are getting fatter, uh, type two, uh, the, the, the blood sugar levels are usually controlled quite well because insulin sensitivity uh, will also allow you to, to effectively store body fat in the hopefully still empty but, uh, fat cells you have. But um, as the um, your insulin resistance progresses and the, the fat cells um, are increasingly filled with, with fat, <laughs> obviously, um, you will notice that there is a point where the storage in subcutaneous compartments is going to get very limited, while the a much more, I would say, adaptive uh, visceral fat compartment is going to increase. So um, unlike the subcutaneous fat, the visceral fat can, can expand and shrink relatively at a relatively fast rate. So it, it will always jump in when, when you are um, in need of storage of excess energy. The visceral fat is, especially if you're already carrying a lot of uh, subcutaneous fat, it's going to be the body's first choice. And that's both good and, and bad news at the same time, because it means that whenever you're gaining significant amounts of body fat, you are at the risk of accumulating visceral fat and um, seeing all the negative health effects that have been associated with that. On the other hand, uh, if you take a look at studies in obese patients, uh, you will see that any intervention that reduces their energy intake and leads to weight loss is also going to significantly reduce the amount of visceral fat and therefore have profound health benefits. So is there any way to differentiate between these two aside from getting a 
DEXA scan or something like that. Or the answer is still controlling overall body fat levels. And uh, if you are in that upper end of the healthy range, whatever it, <laughs> that is, simply losing some body fat. I would say for 90% of the population, the overall body fat percentage is going to be a good way to judge if you are at risk or not. There are, however, um, an increasing number of people who seem to suffer from these um, problem that they are actually quite lean, or at least they look quite lean, but they have accumulated a lot of fat around their organs and especially in their liver. And um, it does not necessarily mean that it, yet you are in the clear if you don't look as if you are fat, especially this, this syndrome of being not necessarily fat, skinny fat, so to say. More and more people are actually or fall actually in that category. And um, for, for them, um, the visceral fat is expanding while the subcutaneous fat is staying at the roughly the same level. And that seems to be at least as unhealthy as regularly a uh, regular uh, obesity. And it's often it often remains undetected which is quite obviously a problem because the longer you uh, run around with increased visceral fat levels and the corresponding metabolic dysregulation, the uh, worse the problems are going to be. So if you have this problem for five years and don't notice it, it can have um, a persistent health detrimental effects on your health um, that, that could have been countered if you started changing your lifestyle um, in ways that will help you to reduce this accumulation of visceral fat um, before. But if you don't know that and don't notice it, um, you're probably not going to intervene in time. Yeah, I guess these are the people who have um, skinny arms and skinny legs and uh, a rather significant uh, belly, I guess. <laughs> they they kind of look like people who drink a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah, actually, that that is a very good indicator of whether you are in danger or not, is to simply track your uh, waist circumference. So... Uh, there are actually a couple of calculators online you can use to estimate your visceral fat. If you um, input your height and your waist circumference, it will give you an estimate at least of whether you're closing in on the danger zone or not. And um, so simply, uh, um, or a tool as simple as a mirroring tape, it's actually your best friend, even better than a scale when it comes to um, body fat management, I would call it, not weight management. Yeah, definitely. And I would imagine that simply being active and um, regularly depleting those uh, liver uh, and muscle glycogen stores would help tremendously with that. Certainly, yes. That's also interesting in relation to the idea that you are most insulin sensitive in the morning. If you take a look at that, you will realize it's not actually right because um, per molecule of glucose that is shuttled in uh, the muscle cells, uh, or any cell actually, um, you will need more insulin in the morning than you will need in the afternoon. Um, the, the most significant difference on the other hand is that you still have uh, all, this, all that storage capacity in the liver and the muscles because you have got some, at least um, at, um, a small decrease in glycogen stores overnight. That is what, what makes, uh, what is behind the, um, improved glucose response, you see. It's not necessarily 
that the reaction to glucose is improved at the cellular level in the morning. In fact, the rise of cortisol in the morning, which is absolutely normal and absolutely healthy, and you need it to wake up and be functional, and also to, to be able to run, well, usually in, in the good old days of the Paleolithic age, you would have gone and tried to find something to eat. And in order to do that, you would have, have, uh, you, you must have increased cortisol levels because cortisol is, first of all, it's um, known for, for its effect on inflammation, but it's also a glucocorticoid. And that's actually what's way more important, it's supposed to, to keep your blood glucose steady. And when it increases in the morning, part of the reasons why that's the case is, uh, to stabilize your blood glucose levels when you're standing up without having eaten anything before. And speaking of raising in the morning, uh, that reminds me of sleep. And I think we were, or you were hinting at, at, um, means to actually help insulin sensitivity or help, uh, staying insulin sensitive. And I think that sleep is maybe one of the most underrated aspects of um, lifestyle that you can tweak in order to maintain healthy blood sugar levels and um, also metabolic flexibility because uh, if you take a look at the research even a single night of messed up sleep or very short sleep is going to significantly impair your ability to keep your blood glucose levels in check and uh, for many of us that's not the occasional night on the weekend but rather every other day or even more often that we don't get enough sleep and therefore maneuver us into a situation where we are actually having a, a sleep deficit that is stressing us out and increasing our risk of developing insulin resistance in a chronic state uh, significantly. Yeah, definitely. Sleep is one of my favorite topics to remind people of the importance of. So what about other lifestyle factors such as chronic stress or um, gut health? And maybe those two have actually an interplay between them and are influencing each other. And I'm aware that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around the whole topic of got help but um, just um, based on what we know right now well i would say that there is sleep which may be the most overlooked one there is exercise which may actually be the most effective one and quite obviously and that's often overrated there's diet so in general it's right that insulin insensitivity and um in the worst case, type 2 diabetes are induced by diets, mostly. Uh, on the other hand, it's not that you cannot eat a significant amount of carbohydrates and still be very insulin sensitive. So the, the link is not as obvious as people sometimes seem to think. And the, the common denominator that all three things have in common is actually inflammation. So if you don't get enough sleep, you will usually realize or you will usually see that over time chronic stress builds up and that appears to be directly affecting your ability to handle glucose because it deregulates your insulin response and the effect of insulin at the cellular level. This is a problem because if you have deregulated insulin sensitivity and for example your liver does not really respond to insulin any longer it's going to keep chugging out glucose even if you already have high glucose levels. 
So usually insulin or the increase in insulin in response to high glucose levels would shut that down, the glucolysis, which is more or less the release of glucose from the um, glycogen stores in your liver. Um, it would shut down regularly if insulin would, would increase. Um, but if um, you're insulin resistant, the uh, appropriate sing signaling is not going to work. And the necessary consequence is that your body is, is actually uh, releasing additional glucose in a phase where you already have high glucose levels. And that is basically also one of the main features or main consequences of um, inflammation in general. And there, there are many sources of inflammation. Um, and the best ways to calm it are uh, to sleep, get adequate sleep, to um, eat a diet that is more anti-inflammatory than inflammatory, and to have a, a healthy exercise habit, meaning to exercise enough to elicit a certain amount of stress, but to avoid chronic overtraining, which is otherwise going to... Um, to tax the, the nervous system in ways that will also eventually affect your um, insulin sensitivity in negative ways because you are um, either in a chronically uh, um, excited state, um, which is usually in the early phases of overtraining, or you will be having similar problems uh, after months, some, for some people even years, of too much training when you are really just dragging along because um well some people would say adrenal fatigue i don't think that this really exists but um basically it's a deregulation of the normal stress response you would show in everyday life so if you are stressing yourself out by doing too much exercise in the gym uh you have uh, you will have your body uh, react improperly um to everyday stressors and Let's be honest, we all have a life that is um, that, that, that will require us to actually do things that may not be ideal in terms of health, for example. So if I went to bed at, at let's say, 12 p.m., uh, sorry, 12 a.m., sorry, uh, in, uh, on a given day and I have to stand up at 5 a.m. again because I have to get to work and time and have to shower and have breakfast and whatever else before, um, then that's not optimal, but that's maybe necessary because um, I w went to bed late because I wanted to spend time with friends or family and then the next, the next morning I will have to go to work. So you can't avoid all these stresses. You can try to limit them, but you can't really avoid them. And that's also why, why people are ill-advised to try and copy the training regimen of um, pro athletes, because their job and their obligation is to go and train. So it's not just that they are often better trained than you are, but also they don't have the the uh, non-negligible stress factors that the quote-unquote normal human being will have in his everyday life. Yeah, excellent. And um, I really like the contextual breakdown you gave there. It was uh, great. So um, speaking of significant amounts of carbohydrates, you wrote an article, um, I think it was a couple of years ago by now, something to the effect of, uh, well, if you go high carb, you might as well you go <laughs> super high carb. So um, do you still think that um, a high carb, low fat uh, messing or 
gaining phase would be um, ideal as opposed to a more um, balanced caloric surplus with an even calorie surplus coming from both carbs and fats I guess and the second part of this question would be the minimum amount of fat to still consume because obviously low fat doesn't mean eating zero grams of fat yeah and someone asked that um how did you come up with your 56 grams of fat uh, intake apparently use this figure in one of your one of your guys to set up your diet yeah i will tackle the the, the question about bulking first so let me say this, I don't believe that it's really necessary to consume more than small amounts above what you need in order to um, maintain your weight to gain muscle. So uh, people who think that they have to eat 50% more than they would usually uh, need in order to build muscle, they will almost always end up gaining a significant amount of body fat. And that's something I would like to, to avoid uh, because while there is the chance that you actually get that your body actually forms new fat cells over the course of your life, especially in the visceral area, there is no real good evidence that you can get rid of the fat cells you you already have ever. So um, it takes at least ten years uh, for a fat cell to die, and then it's usually replaced. So. That is a problem you don't want to have. So you don't want to multiply the fat cells you have. Within a certain increase of body fat, the one you would usually see in healthy individuals, that's not the case. So most of the actual increase in body fat is achieved via hypertrophy. So the existing cells swell with fat and they become larger. When that mechanism is actually reaching its limits, you will see some sort of increase in fat cell numbers. And on the one hand, that's a good thing because otherwise the energy surplus is going to circulate in your blood in form of free fatty acids, triglycerides, and quite obviously glucose. Um, but on the other hand, that's a permanent change because you're not going to get rid of these fat cells again. And the problem here appears to be the following. If you empty all those fat cells again by losing but significant amounts of body fat, you still have the cells around. And they seem to have something like a, a tool to measure how full they are. And if you have a lot of small fat cells that, that are basically empty, you are not going to have uh, the leptin levels that signal your body that you have sufficient fat stores. And that in turn will set you up to increased weight regain and also often reduce metabolism. So if you take a look at those people who have participated in the Biggest Loser study, one of the characteristics you can uh, find in them is that they have high number of fat cells um, with very low level of fat stored in them and extremely often at least extremely low um, leptin levels and reduced baseline energy expenditure. So while this is not 100% proven and it's not clear to which extent this actually contributes to the often heard of reduction in metabolic rate of formerly obese individuals, it certainly figures in here. And you can avoid that by trying to minimize your fat gain. And the reason I wrote about that, uh, about doing that in a while you're bulking, or about reducing fat intake while you're bulking, is because there is an old study which actually tried to minimize the fat intake to almost zero, 
And they found that um, when, when the um, subjects achieved that, the ratio of body fat to lean mass they gained improved significantly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the study has not been repeated, at least I haven't seen it, and I'm not quite sure if that's an outlier study. I, I would suspect it is, and that's also why I wouldn't generally recommend to go extremely low fat. On the other hand, uh, the 50 grams you asked about, they are more or less a recommendation that is not based on specific scientific evidence. I've been trying hard, well, about half a year ago to um, revisit all the research in order to identify if there is something like a fat threshold, so how much fat do we actually need in, on daily level to function optimally. And the, the research to, to give people a figure is simply not there. The 50 grams I managed back in the day are what I think is the absolute minimum to to still get most of your nutrients from foods. Because mm -hmm. you, you will notice that all the high quality protein comes with some fat. I mean, even a chicken breast has some fat. And if you try to limit it to levels beyond or below 50 uh, grams per day, you will be really hard pressed to eat a balanced diet because of this uh, link between high quality protein and fat. I don't think that that's the way, the, the quote-unquote best way for continuous nutrition, um, but if you have to reduce your energy intake, and I'm sorry to say that folks, but without doing that you're not going to lose body fat, it may be a good idea for those of us who are very already relatively athletic and still very insulin sensitive to do that by reducing the fat content of your diet. And that will then bring it down maybe to 50 grams per day. On the other hand, if you are rather chubby or even obese, uh, you may be ill-advised to increase your carbohydrate intake to levels beyond well, maybe 100 to 150 grams per day, you will be well off with a high-protein, higher-fat diet. Not necessarily Atkins style, but with enough fat to use the fat to fuel your energetic demands, which is different from what you see in many people who have been, just like me, indoctrinated for all their uh, teenager years that fat is the bad thing, and now have heard that fat is... Maybe not the bad thing, but carbohydrates are the bad thing. Many of those people are now eating a diet that's almost devoid of both carbohydrates and fats. And that's a problem because when you are starting to get or to have protein as a main um, energy source in your diet, you are certainly going to function suboptimally because it takes an effort for the body to produce glucose from the protein you are ingesting. And you are really prone to hypoglycemic episodes, for example, and also not going to have the blood sugar stability that we have been talking about before, uh, that somebody with a perfect metabolic flexibility would have. Very, very interesting. And um, I definitely agree. That's probably my preferred way of dieting. And well, as long as my adherence manages it, uh, my preferred way of gaining too. I um, So I definitely don't add all kinds of oils and shit to my meals and don't uh, chug butter in my coffee and like you said my fats usually are coming from eggs and um, whatever I get in my uh, from my protein sources and beef or chicken or whatever 
and I like to eat some uh, nuts every now and then. But that's uh, that's around it. Yeah, that's similar to my own approach. So the idea of uh, shoveling down olive uh, extra virgin olive oil in order to get to a certain amount of fat in my diet on a daily basis is almost as alien to me as putting butter into my coffee. So um, I I don't really believe that that it is all that important to hit some magic numbers as some people um, try to make you believe. So. Um, it's also not a problem if you are having or if you're planning to have, let's say, 100 grams of carbs per day in a dieting phase and then end up one diet, uh, one day having 200 grams. Um, people are, are really looking at that on the wrong time scale. So um, that's also why they um, easily get disappointed by the results of any uh, dietary change because it's not going to change how you look and feel overnight. It's um, taking time. And that's also a good thing because a single day of not adhering to a diet is not going to really harm you. Yeah, definitely. So do you find it concerning that maybe if someone follows this high-carb, ultra-low-fat messing um, approach, they would shift their uh, metabolic flexibility in the or their, their fuel utilization in the carb-burning end of the spectrum, I guess, and their um, fat mobilization would be impaired? And if so, do you think something like um, fast, maybe as low as 16 hours, maybe as high as 24, even 48 hours every week, maybe every other week, something like that would be helpful in still maintaining some degree of um, metabolic flexibility? Yeah, I would I would think so. So basically, uh, you are right that the, the very low fat approach entails... Um, well, making it obsolete for your body to actually use fatty acids as um, as a fuel, unless you depri- you strategically deprive your body of um, readily available glucose by fasting, or alternatively by depleting your glycogen stores um, by exercising, and all that comes back to the regulators or the main regulators of well of your metabolism, you could say in general. So AMPKinase is the enzyme that's going to increase whenever you fast and whenever your glycogen stores are low. And um, this is also part at least of the uh, triggers of, of the signaling cascade that is triggered by fasting that seems to be responsible for all the beneficial health effects we have discovered in the past decades. So um, you can get that either by fasting or by working out. And it seems as if, and that's quite interesting, as if these were two slightly different isoforms of AMPKinase. The one that is released in response to fasting is a bit different, obviously, from the one that is released in, in uh, response to exercise. And that's also why, even though AMPKinase is supposed to be the exact opposite of mTOR, which is the signaling molecule that will tell your muscles to load up on protein, the increase you will see with, with exercise, so the AMPKinase increase you will see with exercise, is not going to counter the post-exercise increase in protein synthesis. There is an interesting paper that's, well, I think it should be seven years old or so. I wrote about it in the early days of the subversity. And it showed quite con- convincingly that um, you don't have to replete your glycogen levels and thus to reduce the AMPKinase, le- the, the increase that occurred during exercise, 
in order to optimize your protein, uh, protein synthesis uh, after workouts. And if you look at uh, more recent research, you will see that actually all studies, or almost all studies, that have been conducted um, to um, estimate the additional benefit of having carbohydrates with your protein shake after a workout show no real effects. And if there are effects, it's usually on net protein balance, uh, which is, well, a limited indicator at least of what's going on in your muscle tissue. Because first of all, it measures the nitrogen retention um, and that's a function of uh, protein metabolism in your whole body. So in the intestines, in the kidneys, in the liver, all of these organs contribute to the net protein balance. And it is quite obvious that the increased response in insulin that you will see if you co-ingest protein and carbohydrates will have a certain effect at least on the amount of protein breakdown that's going to take place. And that's, that's slightly reduced, but many experts agree that uh, using this net retention, net nitrogen retention is often misleading us to overinterpret uh, the effect of, um, of insulin and other substances on uh, protein breakdown when it comes to the net out, when your net outcome is increases in muscle gain. So the, the frictional synthesis and the amount of protein that's actually going to go into the muscle is a much better way of judging if a strategy is going to improve your muscularity or not. John from Ellen wrote uh, quite extensively about the whole MPS uh, response thing and uh, how relevant it is or isn't for uh, muscle growth. So I'm probably going to link that in the description so in case anyone wants to dive deep into this topic they can... Uh, check that out. So a uh, relatively new category of supplements are the so-called glucose disposal agents and uh, they are supposedly helpful for uh, well disposing of glucose as the name implies and uh, maintaining insulin sensitivity and as such in the long term improving health and body composition. And the main ones that people know of are probably berberine, alpha lipoic acid, L-carnitine, and um, the most controversial and most promising, I guess, is metformin. So could you briefly describe in a couple of sentences what these are and if, in your opinion, they are worth taking for an otherwise healthy and active individual? Yeah, one thing all of them have in common is that they um, increase your body's ability to absorb glucose. The mechanisms, on the other hand, are different. Although for the most popular ones, the ones you mentioned before, maybe but with the exception of L-carnitine, where it is not quite clear if that's the main mechanism, for the rest of them, it's the increase in the previously mentioned enzyme. AMPKase that will then translate into improved insulin sensitivity, or I should say, an increase in the glucose receptor response to insulin. So basically, your cells, um, especially the muscle cells, will take up glucose from from the bloodstream by extending something that is called a GLUT receptor, like a glucose uptake transporter, GLUT. And GLUT4 is the main transporter in muscle cells, for example. And if you ingest these substances, they are going to increase the level of AMPKase, which in turn will facilitate an increased 
expression of those um, transporters on the cell membrane and therefore improve the amount of glucose and also the speed at which uh, the cells can actually absorb the glucose. So that's actually the whole magic behind metformin. It's a very good inducer of increases in AMPKNase and it is probably also the best researched one because it has been used for years in the treatment of type 2 diabetes and um, with quite success and uh, it's still the first line treatment usually in people with significant insulin intolerance because it uses the body's own or very own system to restore normal insulin uh, sensitivity which would be uh, by the highs and lows of AMPKNase that you are supposed to have over the course of the day but many people are lacking because they are eating way too frequently or eating way too much or have already deregulated um, blood glucose levels that are actually um, creating a vicious circle in which you never, uh, you will never see a, a real quote-unquote fasted state. I think I didn't really answer your question about what I think about those. In general, they are they are very useful, especially for people who already have problems with managing their blood glucose levels. So as I hinted at before, metformin is still the first drug choice if you want to do something about insulin insensitivity and the well, more or less equivalent uh, natural um, non-drug varieties would be alpha-lipoic acid and berberine. For both, there is significantly less research than for metformin. So I would be very careful to say that the natural version is safer. We certainly don't have the data to support that. And um, the, the number of studies on metformin is, is so high that it's only logical that more side effects have been recorded. So the, the general assumption that anything that is natural would be better for your body than anything that is um, chemically produced or produced by bacteria or whatever else is a common misconception in the fitness world. And I'm not saying that, that normal people should take metformin, but actually I'm also not saying that normal people should take alpha-lipoic acid or berberine. Because there is a, a limit to, uh, to the benefits of any increase in uh, insulin sensitivity. I don't know if, if you personally have ever tried using alpha-lipoic acid, but there is a significant number of people who will realize when they are starting to use it, that they are having those bouts of hypoglycemia, of low blood glucose levels. And um, that is usually the case if you are not, or if your glucose metabolism is optimal and your insulin sensitivity is high to begin with, then adding a substance that's increasing AMPKNase even further when it's already increased and your insulin sensitivity is good, may actually lead to um, a significant overreaction, so to say, to insulin that's sending you into temporary hypoglycemia. No, I haven't played around with any of these uh, supplements, and I've seen metformin mentioned as the as a miracle drug, as an anti-aging uh, cure, I guess, and a bunch of similar um, bold claims. And I don't know if I would be comfortable simply recommending it 
to everyone? You don't have to. I mean, if you recommend regular intermittent fasting and keeping your diet in check and working out regularly as well, you will have more than enough activation of this enzyme AMPKNase naturally. So you don't necessarily have to take a, a supplement or a medical uh, a drug in order to actually boost it. Only if your lifestyle doesn't allow for appropriate uh, increases in this enzyme, then you will have to resort to these functional supplements or drugs. And actually, for somebody who works out, for example, it may be a detrimental, not just in terms of going hypoglycemic temporarily, but also in terms of the non-selectivity of these compounds. So while exercise is going to deplete glycogen levels in the muscle, and therefore increase AMPKNase in the muscle. Alpha-lipoic acid, metformin, berberine, they are going to have systemic effects. They are not muscle-specific tools. So the claim that many producers make that this would shuttle all the glucose to your muscles is actually flawed. It may be the exact opposite if you take it after workouts, because if you resensitize the adipose tissue to glucose by taking one of these products after a workout, then a significant portion of the energy from glucose may go to other tissues instead of the muscles where it would primarily go if you just left your body alone. Yeah, and it's so funny that um, a lot of people are, or at least were afraid of EMPK as the catabolic uh, pathway or whatever, and mTOR is the king of the gains, and EMPK is the catabolic one and whatever, and now they are using drugs that, like you said, <laughs> activate EMPK even more. Yeah, and actually, um, th this is also a major discrepancy between the health and fitness community, the online community especially, and the medical community, because if you take a look at the research, then you will always find that AMPKNase is the hero in most studies, and mTOR is the villain. Yeah. So whenever we talk about cancer, scientists will come up with great ideas of how to suppress mTOR to, agree, to a degree that nothing is going to grow in your body. Yeah, and the same is, is true for IGF-1. In any case, um, before I let you go, I must ask you about um, a particular supplement that um, I think you were the first and probably one of the few people who have recommended it. And uh, since then, I started taking it uh, probably due to you. <laughs> and this is taurine. So could you describe what taurine is? What are the potential benefits that you find interesting and valuable? And... Um, maybe the dosages and the timing, if that is relevant, when it should be taken? Yeah, taurine is actually an amino acid that's containing a sulfur moiety. So uh, it's a, one of the amino acids that contribute to, to the sulfur pool in your body. I'm not sure if you are familiar with Mrs. Seneff's research on sulfur metabolic health, and I'm also not quite sure how legit all of her findings, especially the conclusions she's making based on various studies in terms of the significance of sulfur in our body is, but it's quite certain that plays an important role in uh, management of blood glucose levels. By the way, alpha-lipoic acid is also a sulfur-based compound, so that also tells you that it appears to be important in this uh, respect. 
And taurine has been shown to be of great importance for uh, the fluidity of the cell walls, which in turn will affect the exchange of sodium and potassium across the uh, cell membrane. And um, that is probably part of the reason why one of the features of taurine is that it can help with normalizing blood pressure levels. That is actually one of the things that scientists have zoned in first when they were looking at taurine. Then they, they realized that taurine appears to be depleted by the typical inflammatory diseases we suffer from these days. So uh, metabolic syndrome usually goes hand in hand with low taurine levels. And studies show that repleting those taurine levels will improve your glucose management, your blood pressure as measured before, uh, your liver function and other uh, intricate markers of overall health. And that's also what made me interested in doing some more digging on taurine. I don't want to say I did research because I'm not doing any research. I'm only reviewing it. So I um, tried to find out more about it. And it turned out that there are other interesting effects it has. So for example, it appears to interact with the GABA receptor in the brain. and Probably due to this effect, it also is a perfect synergist to caffeine um, because it seems to to buffer some of the negative side effects that caffeine can have on your central nervous system. And I don't know if the creators of the most famous energy drink had that in mind when they combined caffeine and taurine, but there are actually studies that seem to support that the ratio of 1 to 10, so 10 times more taurine than coffee, appears to be the optimal dosing, and it's the dosing in the number one brand you would think of when you think about stimulant uh, sweet beverages. The 10 to 1 ratio of 10 times more taurine than caffeine is actually what, what this product has. So could be coincidence and um, that's also the numbers are only based on rodent studies we don't have enough data in human beings to say what's optimal for us but there's certainly evidence that it makes a good combination taurine and caffeine at least in terms of um, increasing your cognitive and physical performance if your goal is to increase your energy levels combination with caffeine uh, appears to be the best idea and the ratio of 10 to 1 seems to be at least according to rodent studies uh, where the real magic is happening while um, increasing it and taking more than 10 to 1 ratio so more taurine is going to rather reduce the wanted uh, central nervous system activation due to uh, caffeine ingestion and therefore reduce the overall efficiency of what you expect when you use caffeine for performance, cognitive or physical or whatever. And that's where the, the magic number was defined in that context, so to say. Very interesting. So um, are there any other um, potential benefits of it? And uh, then maybe you could uh, tell us what the most uh, optimal or most beneficial dosing strategy or timing would be yeah that actually depends on what you what's your prim primary goal so if you um are in general good health and just want to want to make sure that you have um optimal levels of taurine in your blood you will probably need roughly two grams or three grams of taurine 
and um, timing is not really that important. If you take a look at the studies that show specific benefits, however, it appears that the repeated administration of three grams, like six grams over the, uh, um, in two servings, one in the a.m. and one in the p.m., uh, appear to be superior. And those are dosages of six grams and more are the dosages that have been used in studies in people with compromised insulin sensitivity to actually restore that, not necessarily to normal, but at least to improve it. And the interesting thing is that taurine is one of the few agents that actually seems to increase the insulin sensitivity and the clearance of insulin after it's done its job. So at the very beginning of the podcast, I was talking about insulin clearance being a commonly overlooked determinant of insulin management in general, and also the emergence of insulin resistance. And taurine can help here. Similar dosing schemes have been shown to help with blood pressure measurement. This is something that I found a bit disconcerting. The research you will find on taurine and blood glucose management is in certain ways contradictory. While the majority of studies shows that taurine lowers blood pressure, there appear to be certain individuals and thus also certain studies in which um, it seemed to increase blood pressure. Usually that's when it's combined with caffeine, so this energizing component may not be ideal for everyone, but that doesn't change that the majority of research shows that it has rather blood pressure lowering effects. And there is the observation that low levels of taurine will lead to increased blood pressure or are associated, I should say, with increased blood pressure. Um, they are very, very consistent results in the literature. And therefore, I would still say that it's certain, more or less, that taurine is going to help you with blood pressure measurement. In case you're starting to supplement and realize that your blood pressure is creeping up, you will just have to concede that maybe this is not the agent to use for you. And um, that is the case for almost all supplements. I mean, it, you don't have to be outright allergic to a supplement in order not to react well to it. And that is possible for any substance. Very interesting. I usually just take it in the morning. That's when I take most of my supplements. I just wake up and uh, pour myself some energy drink. Funny enough, I just like the taste of it and uh, I find it uh, goes nicely with powders. So that's when I take my, my fish oil, my magnesium, my zinc, and yeah. that's when I take my... Uh, taurine too. I might move that uh, more in the evening. Yes, there's one reason for maybe doing that, um, which is the activation of the GABA receptor. So I've heard reports, but not based on scientifically done uh, randomized controlled studies, uh, rather anecdotal evidence that taking taurine before bed is going to actually help you sleep. And it's also has been um, implicated in uh, helping people with anxiety, although that is another area that is not very well researched. Yeah, interesting. Do you know if it's or have you seen anything indicating that it should be taken on antihistamine, or could it be taken after 
the last meal or it's irrelevant? I don't think that it makes much of a difference. Uh, I've seen studies yielding good results where it was administered as part or with a meal. It's usually or the normal intake of taurine we would have would come from sources like fish, for example, and that would always be with a meal. And um, there's also no reason to believe that you have to ingest it on its own because of competition with other amino acids. Actually, there are potential uptake competitions with glycine and um, even more so with beta alanine. But I don't think that this will significantly diminish your returns unless you are really taking a huge amounts of glycine and beta alanine at the same time. Yeah, I usually take glycine uh, before sleep, but as usually before my meal. So to benefit from the potential... Uh, Uh, blood sugar reducing effects so i guess i could just uh, take the glycine before the meal and um, then wait a couple of minutes maybe an hour or so and then take the taurine and that would probably solve the problem yeah and i don't think that this is really something to worry about this whole nutrient timing thing the good thing about it is that it brought the uh, circadian rhythm and its importance for our health uh, back on people's radar The bad thing is that uh, some people started to believe that if they don't have that ultra-fast digesting way hydrolysate uh, shake right after their workouts, and with right I mean before even showering, they are going to miss out on their gains. And uh, we have good scientific evidence. This kind of nutrient timing really doesn't make a significant difference. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Adele, um, you've been more than generous with your time. So um, I think we'll end it here. And uh, maybe we will continue at another time because we could talk about these topics for hours. So um, I will make sure to link in the description of the episode your uh, blog, your Facebook page. And uh, I will also link to the exam in Research Digest so that um, people can check that out and see the work you're doing there. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I, I actually started listening to your podcast um, a few weeks ago, only after you contacted me. I had seen it before, but uh, to my excuse, I haven't been listening to podcasts for years. I only got some um, wireless headphones lately and realized that you can actually listen to podcasts while you're working out, especially if you're doing cardio. And then your podcast was one of the first I started to listen to. And I, I like the general idea of helping people to find their way in, in terms of health, nutrition and training. And that's also the reason why I started blogging about it. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, definitely podcasts are great for uh, passive learning, I guess. Whenever I uh, do the dishes or fold my laundry or so whatever, there's always something playing in the background. So <laughs> they're great for that. So with that, I would like to ask you the final question that I always end the episodes on. And I guess if you've listened to my previous episodes, then you know uh, what I'm going to ask you. Adele, what is your definition of success? Well, that is a difficult one. I fear that you may ask that. Um, my personal definition of success is um, achieving a state of satisfaction and personal happiness. So that obviously requires uh, not necessarily absolutely optimal, but at least good health and being able to or having enough money to do the things you love to, not necessarily tons of money. And also having a base of people that are supporting you and that form some sort of social network, real social network, not like Facebook, 
to support you. That would be a success. The, the classic markers of success like for example, a certain job title or a certain, a certain number on your paycheck, I don't think that those really matter that much when all is said and done. So um, different markers can actually be very beneficial for you because you will be happier and more satisfied if you use those eventually more relevant markers than uh, the money and the fame or titles like PhD or things like that. Yes, definitely. I um I'm entirely in agreement with you there. So um again, I would like to thank you for um, giving up your time to come on and uh, chat with me. And I um I look forward to all the great work uh, you are doing and you will be doing on your blog. Okay, thank you. So that was episode 16 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Adar Musa. I hope you enjoyed the episode, found it helpful. And if you did, please share with a friend, send it over to someone who might benefit from this information. And if you're feeling extra generous, feel free to leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening this podcast on. As always, this podcast is available in YouTube too in video format. Just search for the Muscle Engineer podcast and it should come up right away. If you enjoyed the episode, I would like to direct your attention towards an article that Adele has written that is sort of a companion, if you want to call it that, to this episode. And I will link that in the description of the episode, of course. It's a very in-depth article about insulin and the glucose clearance and its potential role on health and body composition. So please check that out and um, let me know and let Adele know what you thought of it end of this episode too. So I announced last week that I won't be doing the summaries at the end and after that a couple of you messaged me saying that you really enjoyed that uh, segment of the episodes and uh, you would like me to continue doing them so I will. However I won't do this um, here and now because I'm afraid that it will be lost and um, I think this episode has been long enough as it is. So what I will do instead is record a separate episode where I will uh, give my top three takeaways both for last week's episode, the one with Burger Fagelli, and for this one with Adele. So if you would be interested in that, look forward to... I'm going to say next week's episode, and I know I am not keeping up with my promised uh, one episode per week schedule, but uh, unfortunately this podcast is just isn't and can't be my top priority since, like I said, it's not paying the bills, so... I do have to prioritize the things that actually keep the lights on, both literally and uh, metaphorically speaking. So I will do my best to release that episode sometime next week. And uh, after that, I have an upcoming episode with someone that is uh, very well known in the evidence-based fitness community. He has been one of the original proponents of science-based fitness uh, content I guess. He has one of the earliest fitness blogs probably on the internet and uh, most of you should be very well familiar with him. So look forward to next week's episode too. So with that I will will end this episode. I hope you will have an amazing uh, week and we will talk soon. Take care.